0: as you know, last Sunday we began a mini three-week series uh, in light of the election here on this Tuesday. And we've been calling this series Politics and Presidents and uh, Election Day Truth for Troubled Christ Followers. And the whole goal of this three-week series here is to see what God's Word has to say, to let God's Word kind of impact our perspective, shape our thinking and even guide our thinking when it comes to politics and presidents. And last Sunday we looked at Jesus' words in the Gospel and we saw that uh, the Election Day truth before the election is to obey the government as long as you can but most of all worship God as long as you live. Well this morning we want to continue that line of thought with the Election Day truth Uh, on the election day itself. And to do that, we're going to be looking at a story in Daniel chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you don't have a Bible, you can uh, use one of the Pew Bibles. It's the black Bible right there in front of you on the back side of the Pew. And Dane is going to come and lead us in our scripture reading. And so as you look for your Bibles, why don't we stand in the honor of God's Word, the reading of God's Word, as Dane comes and leads us.
1: As Pastor Bruce mentioned, we will be reading in the book of Daniel, chapter 4, starting in verse 28. Again, in the Pew Bible, page 504. Daniel, chapter 4, starting in verse 28, and reading through the end of this chapter. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand, or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me, my counsels and nobles restored it to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways, justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we just come to you this morning, just, just humbly come before you and approach your throne, Father. Father, as men rise and fall, come to power, Lord. We know through your word that your kingdom lasts forever, and we praise you for this, Lord. Father, as we just uh, draw near to this election season, Lord, I pray that you just be with each of us. Lord, I pray that you just be with our country, Father, and be with our candidates, Lord. Father, may they turn from their sins, Father, and trust in you as Lord and Savior. Lord, open our hearts, soften our hearts to Pastor Bruce's message. Lord, I pray that you use him in a powerful way this morning. In your name I pray, amen.
0: Thank you, Dane, for leading us in our scripture reading there of Daniel chapter 4. Well, as most of you know, Tuesday is Election Day, and there is a nervous angst about the results among a lot of people. Perhaps you are one of those. What if so-and-so wins when the confetti is swept away and the election is finally over? What will we see? Perhaps those questions have crossed your mind. Well, I have a prediction. I know exactly what we'll see on Election Day. Are you ready? You're like, wow, he's bold. We will see another day of God's perfect sovereignty at work. Trusting God's sovereignty over nations, it actually opens the door for peace on election day. And actually, every day, when we realize that God influences the hearts of kings and rulers, senators and presidents, then we can choose to pray for them rather than fret about them. We can choose to uh, lift our hearts up in trust rather than wring our hands in worry. And one of the best places in the Bible to see this particular Election Day truth is none other than what we saw here in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel 4 is is an amazing story. It's, It's a peculiar story. It's a story about a king who actually went crazy with a lesson for presidents just as valid today as it was 25 centuries ago, but it is also a story about every one of us here this morning. What happened to King Nebuchadnezzar actually happens to all of us sooner or later, and for many of us, it may happen more than once. Therefore, we should pay careful attention to this ancient story, because one way or another, we must learn this lesson, or we will perish. But if we learn this lesson that King Nebuchadnezzar learned, then we are in for some of the greatest joys in all the universe. So what I would like to do is this. I would like for us to, first of all, look at this story about the king who went crazy, and then take some time to look at its relevance for the next president of the United States. So here's the lesson. Let me just give it to you up front, and then we'll talk about it. We'll unpack it. We'll unfold this lesson. But here's the lesson of the king who went crazy. Here's what we learn is right here that the pathway of the pride of self to the praise of God must travel through the valley of humiliation. And that's the pathway that every person must travel if he or she wants to get to heaven and actually experience eternal life. Ever since Adam's first sin, we all have been born with this disposition within our hearts. Do you remember what the essence of that first sin was in the Garden of Eden? It was the abandonment of childlike dependence on God in favor of godlike dependence on self. This is bad news. This is very bad news. For our God hates sin, hates pride in particular. We learn in Isaiah, chapter 20, Isaiah 2, verse 11, where God said, The haughty looks of a man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. God hates pride. But the good news is, the good news is God also loves proud sinners. Aren't you thankful for that? And that's why he sent his son Jesus Christ into the world. To save all of us from the power and penalty of our sin, of our pride, if you will. And so Jesus now comes on the scene here in Matthew chapter 18, verse 4, and he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus came into the world to convert people from a a godlike dependence on themselves to a childlike dependence on God and God alone. And then Jesus died to actually pay the penalty for our pride and then to show us the way of humility, how to live out this life that he calls us to. And so God, in other words, has provided for us now a path in which to live as Christ followers, a path that leads us from pride to the kingdom of heaven and to eternal life. But that particular path that we're talking about here, this path always travels through the valley of humiliation. That's what the Bible is all about. That's what this story in Daniel 4 is all about. And that's what I want us to talk about. So are you ready? Let's look at King Nebuchadnezzar's story. It actually unfolds in three stages. Stage number one is the pride of self. Stage one begins when King Nebuchadnezzar is at the height of his power. He's at the height of his glory. Nebuchadnezzar is king of a great empire and he knows it. So what did the king see when he gazed over the city of Babylon. Well, he looked with pride at his hanging gardens, which was a beautiful artificial mountain that he actually had built for his wife, inside the city of Babylon. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Nebuchadnezzar also had three massive palaces in the city. In fact, his main palace was 350 yards long and 200 yards wide. That's 630,000 square feet of palace. Now, I don't know about you, I can't relate to that. I really can't comprehend that when I look at the size of my house to the size of that. And so here's to give you context to help you understand that. The largest square foot house in America, anybody know what it is? It is the Biltmore House, and it measures 179,000 square feet. And yet, the palace, one of the main palaces, the biggest palace of King Nebuchadnezzar, is over three times as big as the Biltmore House, to help give you context. In the city of Babylon, well, it was an architectural marvel. Records indicate that two million people actually lived here, making it one of the largest cities in the world at that time. And so the city was also, it was protected by a double-walled system, 85 feet high and wide enough at the top that the chariots could actually race around the perimeter of the city. Just imagine if we had a NASCAR race around the top of the city. Michael, you would like that. Truly, King Nebuchadnezzar had every reason to feel secure, to feel safe, and to feel satisfied. No wonder his heart begins to to swell with pride. This is stage one in the path, and it's where we all start in life. The pride of self. Look what the king says in Daniel 4, verse 30. Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? So what can we learn from these words about the nature of pride? Well, we can see at least two parts to pride. One is found in the word by, and the other in the word for. And so when the king says, by my mighty power, he actually means that I love to think of myself as the cause and the controller and even the source of all my greatness. I'm the one who initiates it. I am the source of it. I cause it. And when I see what I have built... I love to savor the fact that my intelligence, my initiative, and my power were the cause of this greatness. It came from me and through me. That's what he's saying. And so pride gets its pleasure, in other words, from being independent and being self-sufficient. And then King Nebuchadnezzar adds, For the glory of my majesty. In other words, he's saying, I have built this great Babylon by my power and for my glory. Pride loves to think of itself as the source of great achievement and the recipient of great praise. So, what is pride? Well, here's a working definition. Here's the essence of pride. In fact, this definition, let me give credit where credit is due, comes from pastor and author John Piper. And it is, pride is the enjoyment of self-sufficiency rather than God-sufficiency and self-exaltation rather than God-exaltation. It's the enjoyment of that. Pride occurs when you start thinking that every good thing in your life is the result of who you are and what you have done. It removes God from that equation. Now, don't make this mistake of saying to yourself, even right now, well, pride is certainly not my problem because I don't feel self-sufficient and nobody is praising me for my looks or my abilities. Be careful there. Don't let Satan trick you. Pride is not just the achievement of self-sufficiency or the achievement of self-alternity. Exaltation, but rather pride is the enjoyment of them, the delight in them, and the desire for them. You may see your life as a total failure. You may even feel crushed by defeat and still have pride as the driving force of your life. As author and pastor John Piper describes it this way, One person may go to a party and brag and boast and draw attention to himself and his accomplishments. Another person may go to the same party and be so fearful and insecure that he or she hides in the corner and tries to avoid people. And both these people may be driven by pride. The strong person doesn't believe the grace of God is needed, and the weak person doesn't believe the grace of God is sufficient. And since God is not their portion, man is this long for esteem and praise of man one person fearful that he won't get it hides another person hopeful that he will get it he brags some same disease different symptoms and all of us have it so the first stage of our journey As you can see from the example of King Nebuchadnezzar here is pride. If we don't humble ourselves before God, then his grace, God's grace, will actually lead us, will actually guide us and direct us, almost as if he is moving us into, number two, the valley of humiliation. Now, it's a dangerous habit to stroll along the roof of your personal kingdom And start thinking about how great you are. Now most of us here, we don't stroll along the roofs of our kingdoms. Rather, we may stroll along our back decks. Or we cruise along in our vehicles. Whatever the case may be, we can relate to this. Watch out. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And did you notice all the personal pronouns that King Nebuchadnezzar used in verse 30? I, my, they certainly take center stage. As one author writes, he gorged himself on his own importance. If anyone needed to put his ego on a diet, it was Nebuchadnezzar. And God showed up to serve him an extra helping of humble pie. And so while the words were still on the king's lips, Nebuchadnezzar actually heard a voice from heaven. Look what God tells the king in verses 31 through 33. Look at it again. God is speaking and says to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, Seven times you shall rule over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. And he was driven from men, and he ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws." Can you imagine the scene? Can you imagine the picture? Can you imagine living like this? One moment Nebuchadnezzar is surveying his royal kingdom, and the next he is raving mad. He's ripping off his clothes, and he's galloping on all fours down the streets of Babylon. One moment he's eating at the king's table, and the next he's eating grass in the fields like an ox. It's hard to imagine A more severe form of humiliation from God than this. There would be no way to keep this hidden, to cover this up. There would be no way to keep the king's insanity hidden from the public for seven years. Sooner or later, it would leak out. Though Nebuchadnezzar was still the king, he could not reign, he could not speak, he could not appear in public. He acted like a beast in the field, living and eating with other animals. And over time, his hair became matted and coarse and looked like eagle's feathers. His fingernails and toenails were never cut and became like bird's claws. It's a long way down from being the king of Babylon to being a beast in the field. So why? Why why would God make Nebuchadnezzar act like a beast for seven years? Well, here's the reason for the valley of humiliation. Notice this. God leads us to the valley of humiliation so that we can feel the bestiality of pride and taste the bitter grass of its field. You see, pride... Is really a form of spiritual insanity. Pride is, is claiming credit for ourselves that belongs to God alone. And so when we try to become like God, we become instead like an animal. Pride puts us in a class with the beast of the field. That's the point of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. We all have this, quote, beast of pride living within us. Nebuchadnezzar represents a life out of control. He can't even follow the basic rules of personal hygiene and diet. Has that happened to you before? Not necessarily like Nebuchadnezzar here, but do you ever look in the mirror and wonder what's happened to me? My life is out of control. Well, stage two is this painful discovery of this particular truth here of why your life is out of control. We thought we were strong, and now we begin to discover that we are weak. We thought we were weak, and we discover that we are protecting our ego. We thought we were self-sufficient, but we discover instead that we are utterly dependent on God for life and breath and everything. And so I urge you, if you have never been there, go to the valley of humiliation. Go there even on your own. Let yourself feel the insanity and even the bestiality of pride. And when you have tasted the bitter grass of that field, then travel to the final stage of the journey. You say, what stage is that? It's stage three. It's the praise of God. The praise of God. You see, the pathway of life leads from the pride of self through the valley of humiliation to The praise of God. We learn here in this story, Daniel 4, that seven years later, the king's life took another dramatic turn. Look what King Nebuchadnezzar writes now in verse 34. He says, And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. What is the opposite of pride? Nebuchadnezzar teaches us here in these verses that the opposite of pride in man's strength is praise for God's sovereignty. This is what he actually sings about when his sanity returns to him seven years later. Look what he sings here in verses 34b and 35. He says, and he's speaking about God here now, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done, Lord? In verses 36 and 37, Nebuchadnezzar then goes on and he gives us the end of the story and the lesson that you and I, that we here should take to heart when when it says, At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. And I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride he is able to put down. That last sentence is written from a man from personal experience. This is Nebuchadnezzar talking here. This is what the valley of humiliation is for. This once prideful king openly declares the praises of God. He has truly gotten the message. He truly understands. God can do anything that he wants to do, and no one can stand in his way earthly kings rule by God's permission and they stay on the throne only so long as it pleases God to give them power and authority Nebuchadnezzar has learned this truth but he learned it the hard way and now he proclaims it for all the world to hear and God has graciously recorded it for us in his scriptures here for us to learn for us to hear Now there are actually two great revolutions that take place as you come out of the valley of humiliation. Notice this in your notes, coming up on the screen here. One is an intellectual revolution, how you think about God, and the other is an emotional revolution, how you feel about God. This intellectual revolution, that is how you think about God, your perception of God. Your world view about God is described back in verse 32. The voice from heaven says that Nebuchadnezzar will eat grass like an ox and then notice what it says. Until you know. And that word know there is the idea until you acknowledge, until you have learned this truth that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whoever whomever he chooses so what does this mean for us today well it means whether you're a king or a president with great power and great influence or whether you are just a common person with little power and little influence The way out of the valley of humiliation is a revolutionary change in the way you think about God. The truth that God rules the kingdom of men must grip your mind. And the sovereignty of his will must become the foundation of all your thinking. In other words, this becomes your worldview in which you look out, in which you It's what gives you the framework when you read the news on your phone or when you watch the news on your device or on your TV at night. It's what gives you the perspective in the framework when you have conversations about what's going on in our country and world with your coworkers and neighbors and family members. This is what frames your thinking. The other revolution that takes place as you come up out of the valley of humiliation is an emotional revolution. How you feel about God. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was persuaded in his head something he knew, something he learned that the saying that he said prior, by my power and for my glory is the saying of a beast in the field that is the saying of a prideful person the true saying that he now learns that he now comes to and knows is by God's power and for God's glory but Nebuchadnezzar didn't just learn this in his head he felt it in his heart That's the point of verse 34 when he says, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. And then he breaks out in song praising the sovereignty of God. And so what he learns in his head now grips his heart and it's both and, not either or. And I hope Nebuchadnezzar's story is the story of your journey here this morning. Because it's the only journey that leads to heaven and to eternal life. The king who went crazy actually teaches us that the pathway of the pride of self to the praise of God must travel through the valley of humiliation. And so wherever you may be on that road, on that path, let me encourage you to take another step toward God and away from pride. Now, perhaps you're sitting there and you're wondering to yourself, what does all this have to do with politics and presidents? Well, the answer is everything. Everything. So how, how does a king who went crazy apply to the election on Tuesday? Well, let me close with an application to the presidential election. And I close with one simple and awesome question truth God will sovereignly choose the next president of the United States and if that's too simplistic for you let me state it another way in other words God ordains the next man or woman who is elected president of the United States and God sovereignly ordains that you say where do you get this from Bruce we'll go back and look what it says in the last part of verse 32 the Most High, and who is the Most High? Is God. The Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he, what? Chooses. That's not just true for kings in Nebuchadnezzar's day. That's still true for presidents in our day. God's sovereign control includes elections and election results. Which means the winner of this election only wins because it fits inside God's plan. And this plan, believe it or not, is for our good, but most of all, for God's glory. Now, there are two things that this does not mean, and then there are two things this does mean as we approach. Tuesday so let me share those with you first of all two things this does not mean. number one it does not mean that you should not vote doesn't mean that we shouldn't vote that we don't have to vote or whatever why because God will govern the election by governing the voters Verse 35 reminds us that God does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, which includes the inhabitants of the United States of America. As American citizens, we have the privilege to vote. It's a privilege to vote. And when we vote... We, we take part in a process where we get to determine, according to God's sovereign will, who will lead our nation, who will make our laws, and who will protect our freedoms. As Samuel Adams once said, let each citizen remember at the moment he is offering his vote that he is executing one of the most solemn trusts in human society for which he is accountable to God in his country. And so as Christ's followers... I would encourage you to consider the idea that we don't just vote as citizens of America but we also vote as citizens of heaven this means let your faith in God let your 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 trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ impact your vote on Tuesday a recent study by the Pew Forum on religion and public life shows that nearly two-thirds of Americans say their faith has little to do with their voting decisions But I would suggest that Jesus expects us to let our faith influence every part of our decision-making in life. All of our life. And a little slice of that includes our democratic process of voting, if we so choose to take part in that. So first of all, it does not mean, God's sovereignty over all this does not mean that we should not vote. Number two, it does not mean that God will approve all the policies of the man, and I should say woman, who wins. Why? Because God's sovereign rule over sinful men is not, listen to me, is not an endorsement of their actions and deeds. Either prior to becoming the presidency, or during the presidency, or after the presidency. So two things this does not mean, that you shouldn't vote, and that God will approve of all the policies of who wins. God will choose the next president on Tuesday, and there are two things this does mean. Number one, it means that the presidential winner should not boast, but should be humbled under the mighty hand of God. In other words, the winner of Tuesday's election should not boast like King Nebuchadnezzar. I wish I had confidence to say that that will not happen. But we know otherwise. It means they should not boast like King Nebuchadnezzar and say, by my power and my wisdom, I have won this presidency. Rather, they they should be humbled, just as we should be humbled. And so this truth isn't something just for them and not for us. It's for all of us. We should be humbled under the mighty hand of God who rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. Number two, the second thing it does mean, it means that you should take heart and be encouraged by the sovereignty of God in this election. You say, why? Because whether or not Mrs. Clinton wins or Mr. Trump wins, God still reigns. So, when it comes to the election, here's the bottom line vote without hope in any one person, and vote with hope in our sovereign God, in His Son Jesus Christ. Do you realize all human government will one day end? All human government will one day end. That includes the government of the USA. All human government will one day end, but there is a government that will never end. And it is the government called the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. You go to Isaiah chapter 9. Verses 6 and 7. It's a passage that we normally hear read at Christmas time. But I want you to think of it in terms of Election Day. Listen to it. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And as you go to the election polls on Tuesday, here is our hope as Christ followers. No matter who is president, God is sovereign and Jesus is king. As Danny Aiken, president of the Southern Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, writes, governmental legislation will not stop the moral plunge of our nation and the world, but the gospel will. Our hope is not in Republicans or Democrats, Congress or Capitol Hill. Our hope is in Calvary's Hill, in a crucified, in risen Savior named King Jesus. Listen, the most important decision you can make is not who will you vote for on Tuesday. That is not your most important decision in life. Rather, your most important decision is who you will trust for your salvation and hope for eternal life. And so when you wake up on election day, know this. Let your heart be calmed by this truth. Our God rules the world. As Max Lucado writes, God will still be in charge. His throne will still be occupied. He will still manage the affairs of the world. Never before has his providence depended on a king, president, or ruler, and it won't on election day. According to Proverbs 21.1, the Lord can control a king's mind as he controls a river. He can direct it as he pleases. So trust God on election day. Our hope sits on a throne in heaven, not on a chair in the White House. Let that calm your troubled hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word here in Daniel chapter 4. We thank you for the example of Nebuchadnezzar and how you led him, you directed him to the valley of humiliation. Lord, it is a path that we all must travel to. And so Lord, give us grace to do just that. And may we come out of it praising you and your sovereignty. Help us to rest in your sovereignty, knowing that you alone rule over the affairs of this world. And may your will be done on Tuesday as it is, as it is always done in heaven. And may we trust you on election day and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The praise team's going to sing a chorus, and as they do, this would be your opportunity to respond to the Lord in prayer. Right there where you're seated. However the Lord is directing in your hearts.